Welcome to Boiling Point. What if detecting lung diseases such as cancer would be as easy as taking a breath? Although this sounds like science fiction, a disease breathalyzer is already under development. Join us as we learn how breath analysis can be used for detection of diseases. Welcome back to Boiling Point, the weekly science show on Eastside 89.7 FM. On the show today, it's your host, Ina, and Griff. Hello. Today we are chatting with Marin Baker. Marin is a PhD candidate at UNSW in Sydney. Her research focuses on implementing breath analysis for detection of lung diseases. Welcome to the show, Marin. Hello. Thanks so much for having me. So maybe we can start by you telling telling us what lung diseases do you study and why it is important to detect them fast? Yeah, so we study a whole variety of lung diseases. I mean, in theory, with breath analysis, you can detect any disease in the body. It doesn't have to be lung disease. Um, but yeah, we're focusing on lung diseases just with the clinicians that we're working with. Um, it's really important to have these early detection tests because it greatly increases survival rates and patient outcomes. Um, So for example, if you diagnose lung ca- cancer in stage four, it's only about a 5% survival rate. However, if we can detect it and start treating it in stage one, that jumps up to about 75%. Um, yeah, so being able to detect and treat these diseases at the earlier stages um, greatly improves survival rates. Um, so yeah, we are looking at a range of lung diseases. As you said, predominantly we're looking at silicosis. at the moment um, and that is a disease that is caused by inhaling silica dust so similar to inhaling asbestos um, inhaling the silica dust can lead um, to silicosis which is kind of scarring of the lung tissue um, and it's often caused by people who work with synthetic stones so a lot of the mm. synthetic stone bench tops um, that you see if people don't want to buy real marble or stone they buy the synthetic stuff um, and so the workers who have to make the stone and cut the stone into all the shapes they're often breathing in a lot of the silica dust um, and which causes silicosis right so when it actually gets into their lungs how does it actually affect like what is the physical process that's happening once it's in their lungs to cause the scar damage? Um, so it's just like the really fine particles kind of get embedded into the lung tissue and then to kind of try and remove that silica dust the lungs kind of try and form the scar tissue right. around it um, but it does continue and worsen after the silica exposure stops so it's kind of an ongoing process in the lungs and can you prevent the exposure like by wearing a mask or like is it only partially protecting you? Yes, yeah, so wearing um, yeah, masks and other protective equipment can definitely help prevent it. Um, but we see that there is a real lack of regulations in these industries. Um, and so a lot of the people working with it aren't using the right precautionary measures. And what are some current methods that are used for detecting lung diseases? And how, how long do they take? Yes, yeah, so there are quite... A lot of methods currently used and it really depends on the disease you're trying to detect often for things like silicosis they do a lot of lung function testing so spirometry um, and that kind of tests for the volume of the lung so checking the capacity as well as um, the 
amount of force that you can breathe out with. Um, and these are things that are affected when your lungs are scarred. You often yeah, can't breathe out with as much force and have a much lower capacity, um, as well as things like CT scans, x-rays to kind of look for some of the scarring or in the case of lung cancer to look for some of the tumours. And then I guess biopsies is the most um, yeah, widely used to actually confirm lung cancer, um, getting some of the cells and seeing confirming that that is the disease. Mm-hmm. How, how do you detect uh, diseases with breath analysis? It sounds like impossible to me. Science fiction. Yeah. <laughs> Or just like it would be very complicated, I imagine. Yeah, it is complicated, which I think is why it hasn't, oh, it's not widely used at mm-hmm. the moment. Um, but in theory, any disease that's in your body is going to cause changes to metabolic pathways, um, which can produce or alter the concentrations of chemicals in your body, um, as well as the diseases can produce their own compounds. Um, and so... You have kind of diffusion throughout the body. So from the site of the disease, some of those molecules, particularly volatile ones, um, which we're looking at in mm-hmm. the breath, they kind of diffuse through the body, diffuse across your alveolar membranes to get into your lungs and your breath. Wow. So it's like theoretically each disease would have a different kind of influence on metabolic activity and that could be correlated to a specific disease. Yeah, that's exactly right. Cool. So every disease should have a kind of unique profile. Right. But, um, I mean, as you can imagine, the breath is also influenced by mm. foods and drink and medication and all the other processes occurring in the body, which are going to be unique for an individual right. as well. So it's kind of trying to find the patterns or the molecules that are unique for a particular disease. Right. So is the way you'd kind of look at finding those would be to look into the patients that have the disease and see if their breath has specific markers, I guess. Yeah, that's exactly right. So that's what we are in the process of doing at the moment. We're doing a clinical trial. um, So looking at healthy controls as well as patients with silicosis um, and then comparing their breath profiles to see which molecules are unique or biomarkers for certain diseases. So for silicosis, you're not just looking at silica? Like it's not looking at silica is in the breath necessarily. It's at other markers. But can you see if silica is in the breath? I don't think silica itself you would be able to see just because it's not very volatile. Mm-hmm. Um, and silica itself isn't necessarily indicative of the disease. Right. So you can breathe in small amounts of silica mm-hmm. and not get silicosis. It's kind of the prolonged exposure or the repeated um, yeah, right. intense exposure, which can cause silicosis. Um, and even after the disease is caused, if you remove yourself from the silica environment, you still have silicosis. So yeah, we don't look for silica in particular. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess one of the main challenges is that we don't know which molecules to look for. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we use machine learning methods to kind of go through all the spectra from the healthy controls and the silicosis patients. um, And then we can kind of do a back analysis on that to see which molecules it looked at the most in order to make that disease prediction. And just to go back to when you were talking about volatile molecules, just to clarify what you mean, is that molecules that are react with air or easily like aspirated? I don't know what the word would be. Yeah, so volatile molecules are molecules that can easily get into the vapor phase. So pretty much, yeah, they're often quite small molecules with low molecular mass, right. um, which enables them 
to go from often there's you know solids or liquids in the body um, but to get into the breath we need them to get into the gas phase so they become yeah, volatile when they're in the gas phase so yeah not necessarily reactive just means that they are yeah, in the gas phase so we can see them in the breath profile cool. um, and you said that a disease is altering the metabolic rates but like in what way um, like I guess with cancer, It's kind of obvious, like I guess a cancerous tumor would take more of sugars or energy from the body, but like how does it change your metabolic profile? Mm. Yeah, so like you said, cancers can yeah use up particular um, molecules in the body as well as I mean when you have cancer, you have um, the greater rate of cell replication and division. Um, and so that process, the chemical processes and chemical reactions, and so they're going to produce different. products um, these processes do differ for every disease so the formation of the scar tissue is going to cause unique um, volatile molecules um, so yeah each disease should yeah it can produce its own volatile molecules or it can yeah alter um, pathways in the body that'll just alter the concentrations of existing molecules in the breath and I also know that you not only talked about I guess the Uh, looking at the whole profile but also trying to concentrate certain molecules um, can you tell them about a bit more about this process yes yeah, so we use a method called pre-concentration in a lot of my research um, so the molecules that we're looking at in the breath are at really really low concentration so they're often in the parts per billion parts per trillion um, so basically There really just aren't very many of them in the breath and so for a lot of the analytical methods that we use they need to be above certain detection limits in order for us to pick them up um, and so pre-concentration methods we can use to kind of take a large volume of breath um, and then the pre-concentration material is kind of like a net so we pass that breath through this net um, and it's going to capture some of those volatile molecules um, and then when we go to analyze them we can release those molecules from the net so that their kind of relative concentration is much higher mm. than what we'd see if we were to just analyze the breath um, in line and how do you design such a net like do you have to have a certain molecule in mind when you design it or like is it kind catch all relevant molecules type of thing or like based on size just being like anything that's tiny yeah so there are lots of different types of these pre-concentration materials available and it does depend on what molecules you're trying to capture so some of them do work on kind of physical separation so size you can get yet yeah, different sized kind of nets materials um, if you're looking at size you can also get nets with different chemical properties so if you have a certain net that's going to pick up Um, a certain kind of functional group on a molecule that can often be really useful if you're looking at a particular class of biomarker so a certain type of molecule that you think is going to be a biomarker for a disease you can just try concentrate that particular molecule which in theory makes the analysis a lot easier because the data that you get shouldn't be as noisy because you're kind of just trying to target a particular molecule and when you're saying analysis um, what type of analysis do you mean that So in my research group and my research we use mass spectrometry as our analytical method um, and so that's pretty much a method where you just get a spectrum of all the different masses of the things that you're observing um, and so most molecules their mass will be unique to that molecule um, of course you have different isomers um, so you can get a few molecules at the same mass but by and large lots of different molecules will have different masses and so we can kind of get the profile of the different masses of 
of molecules that we see in the breath. Um, however, there are a lot of different analytical methods that you can use to analyse um, breath. So a lot of people use sensors um, and these can be coloured sensors or they can produce a current. Um, yeah, so lots of different ways to try and pick up the molecules. But in my research, we use mass spectrometry. And is this research like how new is this? Like is this your PhD like kind of starting this investigation or is some has this been around for a while that they thought that you we would be able to do this or yeah it's actually been around for quite a while cool. um and yeah it's been known that the breath profile changes with disease um for quite a long time it's just um been a matter of developing analytical methods that can detect at the really low concentration levels um and also kind of getting it to a point where it can be used in the clinic. So because there are so many different methods, um, I guess breath is a really tricky thing to analyse as well because you have to deal with um, the collection and the storage, um, which is often harder for gases than How it is for How do you store breath? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we pretty much use plastic bags. Right. We call them um, Tedla bags. Um, so they're kind of just a thick plastic that you collect them in. You can also get bags that are made of foil. Um kind of like goon bags, um, <laughs> just filled with breath. So, yeah, because there's no streamlined process, it's kind of been hard to get it into the clinics and mm -hmm. into a point where it can be used um, just because, yeah, the whole process hasn't been optimised. And so lots of different research groups are using different methods. And so there's often a lack of consensus into which molecules are biomarkers for certain diseases just based on the methods that the groups are using. And is it an expensive procedure to test someone's breath or is it like cheaper or theoretically could be cheaper than the methods that are used now so it's theoretically can be much cheaper um so really the only consumable is the bag that you're using to collect the breath um which are about ten dollars the ones that we use but if you were to produce them on mass scale they would be much cheaper um and then we can get the whole breath spectrum in less than 30 seconds from collection so right. in terms of labor time it's very fast so it can be quite a high throughput technique and you can screen a lot of people quite quickly which compared to methods like x-rays and biopsies um take yeah, time yeah take time and also those instruments i mean Mass spectrometers aren't cheap either, so instrument requirements are probably similar, but in terms of the consumables and the labour, definitely much cheaper. Right. For how long can you store a breath before you analyse it? Like, is it good after 10 years or, like, is there a certain amount of time? So this has been quite a big part of my PhD research, actually looking at the stability of breath in the bags. Um, obviously, you wouldn't want to wait 10 years because if you had a disease, <laughs> it probably would have progressed. Um, at the moment, I think they say less than a day is ideal based on a lot of other people's research. Um, what I've found is that it's best within four hours and then after the four-hour time period, you start to lose a lot of the chemicals. So whether they're sticking to the sides of the bags or whether they're leaking out of really small holes in the bags, you do start to lose some of yeah the chemicals. So as soon as possible is best, but obviously not ideal. Does it mean that you're trying to make the analysis, I guess, portable or like far-reaching or mobile? Yeah, so that's not an aim of my research, but that is definitely an aim for the future is to make portable devices so they can just have them in the clinic and take the breath sample at the point of care. Yeah, that is definitely what we would love to see in the future. So to go to your, in more into your research, so what is your specific aim of your PhD? 
So I've been kind of looking at the whole profile, so the collection of the breath, um, and then we're trialling a particular type of mass spectrometry called atmospheric pressure chemical ionisation mass spec. Um, so a lot of breath analysis currently uses gas chromatography mass spectrometry, so they do a pre-separation stage before the mass spec, um, and this they often use... Um, the pre-concentration materials um, to do this analysis. However, that pre-separation does add quite a lot of time, so about an hour per sample. Um, so the method that we're trialling will enable us to do it yeah, in 30 seconds and hopefully eliminate the need for the pre-separation. Um, so I guess that's kind of been the aim of my project is to just try and yeah, trial this new novel yeah ionization method um, to see if we can get it working with the breath analysis in conjunction with some new pre-concentration materials um, and then also kind of looking at machine learning um, and neural network type analysis so rather than looking just for particular biomarkers kind of analyzing the whole profile to pull out patterns that maybe haven't been observed before. Could you talk a bit more about the machine learning I feel like that's such a buzzword these days, but how like is that being implemented into this process? Yeah, so pretty much we just feed our whole mass spectrum input data into the machine learning code. So they're different algorithms that kind of make up their own rules um, that determine how you get from the input data to the disease prediction. So say you had 100 disease participants and 100 controls, you get their breath spectrum um, and you feed it into the machine learning algorithm. Um, the algorithm then uses, say, half of that data to train itself. So it'll decide on what rules to use. So it might look at a particular molecule's abundance or it might look at ratios or different relationships between your different input data to come up with um, yeah, rules of how it's going to predict whether it's a disease or a control participant. Um, and then it tests those rules or algorithm against the remaining data to see whether it can accurately predict. Um, there are a lot of different machine learning algorithms available. So we're testing a lot of them um, to see which ones are best at predicting um, the diseases we're looking at because depending on your input data, that will kind of yeah, determine what algorithm's best. Some of them look at more linear relationships and some of them, um, like neural networks, can look at much more complex relationships. Um, and so, yeah, from the neural networks, we can yeah, develop an algorithm and then you can do um, kind of a back analysis on that machine learning um, and... When you do that back analysis, you can look at which of your input variables the algorithm used the most in its prediction. So it's a really useful way of determining which molecules might be biomarkers by looking at what the machine learning algorithm used the most in its predictions. Um, and then if we kind of yeah, can determine some molecules which look like they can be key biomarkers, then we can start designing more targeted analytical methods as well just to look for those particular molecules. Right. And from those early analysis, like how successful is it at determining what may be a marker or not? Or sorting people whether they have the disease or not? Yeah, so based on the tests that we've done so far, um, which is kind of just been a small-scale trial, it's gotten depending on the disease, but between kind of 80 and 95% accuracy. That's um, crazy. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's so awesome. they can be yeah, really good. Um, 
with the small scale trial, there are obviously risks that you've overtrained your data set and it's just looking, um, yeah, it can't be kind of expanded to a wider population. Um, but hopefully in the clinical trial that we're doing currently, we'll be getting a much larger data set to be able to, yeah, more accurately determine what algorithm cool. to use. So, because even if it becomes like 80%, then you, and it, but if it's a really cheap thing to do, then that still further encourages like further investigation into that patient. Like even if it's not 100% foolproof, it still flags possible scenarios that might not have been caught because of the lengthy process of like doing x-rays and biopsies and stuff like that. So it's still really yeah, awesome. For sure. Yeah, we do envision it as a screening tool, mm. like you said. So yeah, you don't need as higher um, accuracy rates, but yeah, just to screen a large population and see which people are most at risk of developing the diseases, and then yeah, they can go get further testing to confirm the presence of the disease. Um, you talked a bit about like how it might be difficult to transfer the method into hospitals just because of like the f- vessels you use to collect your breath. But can you like talk a bit more about? Like the difficulties of transitioning this method to a hospital or to a clinical test, are there any difficulties? Yeah, so I think one of the main difficulties is the instrumentation requirement. So at the moment, um, our mass specs, as well as being quite expensive, they do require vacuum pumps um, and yeah, a lot of other kind of side bits of the equipment. Um, so it's just kind of a big setup cost to be able to put that into hospitals and point of care um, as well as training anyone who wants to use them um, yeah I think it just needs a lot more optimization just so that we know we've um, got the best method that will kind of mitigate the effects of different foods and drinks and medication um, so I think just because it is quite a new technology there just hasn't been the research yet to get it to the point where it is reliable enough to use in the clinic I do know if um, like a similar method is already used for other diseases. I know it might be very specific, but I know some dogs can detect like the smell of, I don't know, epilepsy, um, seizures or stuff like that. Is there anything equivalent in like the analytical world of something that is already implemented? I think probably the most common example is a breath test, so a blood alcohol test. Um, obviously not used for disease, but that is an example of measuring a certain chemical in the breath um, and then relating that to the concentration of alcohol in your blood. So it is kind of a very similar method. Obviously for that, they know exactly what chemical they're looking for. So the actual analysis of the data isn't very difficult because they're only looking for one marker in the breath. Um, in terms of, yeah, as you said, dogs, can smell certain diseases. Um, hopefully being able to use instruments will be much cheaper than trying to train up a bunch of dogs. Um, but as far as I'm aware, yeah, actual breath analysis is not really used in any clinics currently. Mm. And how far do you think it will be until we see them in clinics, if you can oh, like predict that far? No pressure. <laughs> um, there's actually a company in... England called Alstone and I think they've just signed um, or been yeah, given a grant from the US government um, to develop a portable breath analysis instrument to be used um, yeah kind of in the field and so people who can't get to hospitals um, and I think their timeline was about five years wow. so Whoa. but I think that is very with a grain of salt yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, yeah I think yeah I think it's definitely going to be a possibility but yeah 
probably longer than five years. Because how far are you into your PhD at the moment? This is my last year, so it's my fourth year. And then do you have any, if you could continue doing research, would you do it in this space and what would you want to look at? Yeah, I think there's so much room to kind of expand the current research. Um, Not necessarily anywhere new, but I guess just continuing to develop the techniques and the machine learning algorithms um, and try it on a wider variety of diseases. So... um, yeah, it would be great to try it on lung cancer where the early detection does make such a huge difference. Um, and then, yeah, for me, I guess I'm really interested in the transition between research and making it like a commercializable product. So kind of more into the um, business and, yeah, cool. kind of world around, yeah, seeing how that works and the actual process of kind of you know, getting all the approvals from the government to be actually able to use it as a medical device. I think it's a whole extra step than just being able to do the research. Mm. Like to prove that it works is one thing, but to get it into hospitals where it can be used to make a difference is another. (laughs) Yeah, it is, particularly with breath analysis because there's often a lack of... um, It's hard to see the biomarkers that you're picking up in breath. It's hard to kind of track where they came from in terms of the disease and the metabolic pathways. So, yeah, there's often a mismatch between if you were to look right around the disease environment at what chemicals were present, it's often very different to the profile that we'd see in the breath. Um, And so... It's hard to know what to look for? It's hard to know what to look for. It's also hard for doctors or, I guess, politicians to kind of trust it because you're not seeing in the breath what you'd expect to see around the disease site so yeah kind of lack of correlation which um yeah i guess some people have issues yeah trusting the data when you don't know how it's being um, produced well like i guess that just comes with like skepticism of something that could be like life-changing to so many people that just because something is incredible in the way that you can detect a disease from breath doesn't mean that i don't know Take the take the scrutiny. It sounds really awesome. Thank you. <laughs> I also wanted to ask, like, what brought you into like studying this topic or chemistry in general? <laughs> yeah, I guess I come from a long line of chemists. So both my <laughs> granddad and my dad were um, chemists in kind of different fields. Um, but yeah, I guess that's how I got interested in science and kind of knew that I wanted to study science. Um, yeah, I did kind of fall into chemistry I really like all of the kind of fundamental processes and how it really just explains everything that we see every day um yeah I really love that about chemistry um and then yeah I was kind of really interested in chemistry that has real world applications so as much as like I really enjoy and love the fundamental side I was really um more enjoying learning about um research and projects that you can really see the first-hand change coming out of the project. So I guess the more translatable and commercializable research. Um, And so, yeah, that's how I kind of found my, I did my honours project in the same research group um, and then, yeah, really enjoyed the research. So continued into a PhD. So you said it like the, there is not always correlation between the breath profile and like the profile of the disease in the body is it because like the pathway travels until it gets to the lungs or like or you just don't care about the causation you just care about the correlation and it's fine by you and you don't care why it's different (laughs) 
I mean, I'm not looking at why it's different, but I definitely care about why it's different. And I think <laughs> it's really important. Um, I guess you can compare it to like a plate of food. So because we're looking at volatile um, components, say you had you know, a whole plate of different foods. Some of those foods you're going to be able to smell really strongly, like spices, um, some sauces, and then I guess some vegetables or other products kind of don't give off as many volatile compounds. Um, And so it's the same thing happening at the disease site. So some molecules to do with the metabolic pathways around the disease are going to vaporize more readily. And so you'll see those in higher um, amounts in the breath, um, whereas some that can't get into the breath as easily. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it's traveling quite a long way from the disease site into the breath, particularly if we're not looking at lung diseases. Um, and so, yeah, it does have to get often from a solid into the bloodstream. So you've got kind of solid liquid partition coefficients that you're looking at. And then to cross the alveolar membrane into the lungs and into the breath, you've got like the liquid gas partition coefficient. So I guess, yeah, the relative concentrations do change a lot just based on which molecules are more volatile and more likely to get into the lungs. Awesome. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I was wondering if we could... And with the last question being, if you have any piece of advice for any young scientist or anyone in general, as broad as you would like it to be. Yeah, I think just follow what you're passionate about. Um, But I would also say that science just really teaches you such good problem solving and critical thinking skills that you can really take those to whatever area you're interested in afterwards um yeah it's really just learning how to think how to critically analyze things um how to ask good questions which i think are skills that you can get really use in any research area um i know the research that i'm doing at the moment is not really chemistry based at all um and i could easily kind of go into the engineering fields medicine fields um so it's yeah such i think a lot of projects are so broad um and really just give you the skills to kind of take your career in any direction um, yeah, that you want. I thought that's an awesome piece of advice. <laughs> Thank you, Marin, for being a guest on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, this was Boiling Point on Eastside Radio 89.7 FM. Uh, see you next time with another show. Bye for now. Bye.